Hey everybody, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. Welcome to part two of our two-part show on audio terminology uh, and commonly confused terms, decibels, levels, loudness, etc. So on this show, part two, we're mostly going to be talking about commonly confused audio terminology. And there's a lot of them on this list that are, some of them are very basic and, you know, it's like noob alert, you know, but others are really easy to get confused. And I'm going to explain the difference between these and hopefully uh, it will help you in your conversations about audio and in your understanding about audio and maybe even clear up some things that you thought you knew and, you know, maybe had confused this whole time. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. So the first term on the list is high-pass filter versus low-pass filter. Now, if you've been doing this for a while, I'm sure you've heard these terms a thousand times, but it is such an easy term to get confused, even for pros, okay? I've seen interviews with people where they've said high-pass filter, and what they really meant was low-pass filter. Um, So let me explain the difference between these. A high-pass filter is the same thing as a low-frequency cut, Okay, and it's called a high-pass filter because the high frequencies pass. They are allowed to pass while the low frequencies are cut. Same goes for a low-pass filter. The low frequencies are allowed to pass and the high frequencies are cut. So again, high-pass filters cut lows, low-pass filters cut highs. Okay, now if I were leader of the free audio world, <laughs> I would probably have just come up with a new term uh, rather than creating more confusion for these things. I would have said something like, uh, you know, uh, LFC for low frequency cut, you know, and HFC for high frequency cut. Um, there are a lot of EQs and things like that, like even the Fab Filter just calls it a low cut filter rather than a high pass to avoid confusion. And I think that's smart because that's really what we're doing. We're cutting low frequencies. Um, but technically speaking, both terms are correct. Uh, just make sure you don't confuse them when the time comes. So the next term we've got is stems versus individual tracks. Now, this one's also very easy to confuse, and, you know, I see this happen a lot. So let me explain the difference here. When uh, you're going to mix a track from somebody, sometimes they'll say something like, okay, I'll send you the stems. And what they actually mean is they're going to send you the individual tracks. So what's the difference between these? Stems are submixes or subgroups. So uh, in a normal, like, full production, you would have a drum stem, and the drum stem is essentially just the drum mix, just the drums. And then a bass stem would be, you know, all of your bass tracks mixed down to one track. And a background vocal stem is the background vocals all mixed down to one stereo track. Those are stems. Okay, but individual tracks are just that. They are individual tracks. So, you know, lead vocal, backing vocal one, backing vocal two, backing vocal three, kick, snare, hi-hat, rack tom, floor tom, etc. Those are individual tracks. So if, you know, if you actually are doing stem mixing, that's a totally different process because you'd be mixing from uh, stems with, with these subgroups. So you don't have as much control as if you're actually mixing from individual tracks. Um, recently I actually had a session where somebody said, I'm going to send you the stems and they said, okay, I said, okay, blah, blah, blah. I knew what they meant, but they actually ended up sending me stems. And I said, Hey, I, I need the individual tracks. And because I didn't tell them that, because I didn't like catch them in the moment, 
Um, you know, because they, I think they asked me something like, um, I'm going to just going to send you stems. Is that okay? And I was like, sure. You know, but because I just assumed that they were confusing the term, but they actually were using it correctly. Um, so don't get those confused. Make sure when you're having somebody mix your track, you really know what you're sending them and they really know what they're getting. Stems are subgroups of tracks and individual tracks are, of course, individual tracks. Okay, so the next term I want to talk about is the difference between mixing, mastering, remixing, and stem mixing. Now, again, this is kind of a noob alert term because we should probably know what the difference between all of these are by now. But I just wanted to clarify for people. Mixing, of course, is balancing individual tracks uh, to create the balance and emotional response and energy and all these things that we love about good mixes um, to create a mix, which is then taken to mastering. Now, mastering only involves the stereo mix, generally speaking. Um, we're going to talk about that in a second. So all they have is a stereo file, left and right, of your mix. So that's the biggest difference. Now, mixing, of course, has different goals than mastering as well. Typically, the primary goal of mastering is to prepare songs for release, and that means making sure that the tone and the level and the loudness and all of those things are appropriate for the type of release that uh, the artist is seeking. Mastering also tends to take into account all of the songs on a given project, making sure that all the, you know all 10 songs on the album share a similar tone and a similar punch and a similar loudness. Remixing, this is a term that is another one that's hard to really delineate what it is because if you, let's say somebody did a mix for you and you didn't like it, it might be very tempting to just say, hey, I need you to remix that. But that term is kind of confusing because remixing is a specific type of mixing that we do uh, every now and then, which is taking stems or sometimes individual tracks from released songs or from, you know, finished productions and turning them into something else. You'll find remixes a lot in the EDM world and in the house world and the dance world, all those types of things, because they'll take a song like Michael Jackson's Billie Jean and they'll turn it into like a synth pop remix. That's what remixing is. Whereas otherwise, if if you you know got a mix from somebody and you didn't like it and you wanted them to mix it again, the proper way to say that would be, like, I need you to like mix it again. <laughs> Not remix it technically because that term, we don't want to get confusing here. Now, you can do stem mixing and you can do stem mastering. There are some mastering engineers that will actually request to do stem mastering, meaning you do your mix and then you send them a drum stem, a vocal stem, a key stem, whatever. Now, I don't like that. I don't, me personally, I don't like stem mastering because it allows the mastering engineer to change my mix way more dramatically than they could if they just got a stereo mix. And that, to me, is bothersome. I don't want to leave that up to them, especially if I'm producing. It's like, no, I, it's my call. It's not the mastering engineer's call. And it's like, this is the end of the line. I don't want to get this far only to have it changed in a way that I don't like uh, or that the artist doesn't like, of course. So, But those things are real. Stem mastering, stem mixing, those are both things that can be done. And like we just talked about in our last point, stem mixing is when you are given uh, unmixed or maybe roughly mixed stems 
and then you're making a mix from those stems. Whew. Okay, hope that one made sense. Here's another noob alert term, which is the difference between cardioid and condenser. Now, again, I know that some of you might be rolling your eyes saying, how can you get those confused? But as you know, I talk to a lot of people through email questions for the podcast. I teach a class. I'm always talking to other engineers and producers about, you know, audio things. And you'd be surprised that I hear this confusion more than I'm I mean, it's really surprising, honestly, a cardioid versus condenser. You know, you might have a producer that says, I'll just put a cardioid mic on that. And you you have to ask yourself, like, do, do they really mean cardioid mic or do they mean condenser? Is that what they actually mean? Um, because, again, a producer doesn't necessarily have to be a tech, you know, a, a technical person like an engineer often needs to be. Um, producers are, uh, are kind of all over the map in terms of their technical knowledge. But um, cardioid, of course, is a polar pattern or a type of pickup uh, that a microphone may or may not have, which describes how it picks up sound directionally. Now, of course, cardioid comes from the cardioid sort of the mathematics of it and the shape that's created, which is somewhat heart-shaped cardio, cardioid, cardiovascular, heart. I think you're getting the connection here. Condensers are a type of microphone uh, that um, is, differs from, say, dynamic mics or, or ribbon mics in design. And we use a lot of condenser mics that may be cardioid, but they could also be figure eight or they could be omnidirectional. Now, that all goes to say a cardioid microphone might be a condenser, but a condenser might not be a cardioid. Uh, so a cardioid mic could also refer to a dynamic mic. So don't get those confused. I know it seems simple, um, but just make sure, especially if you're working with a producer or an artist and they say something like, I really like, uh, you know, using cardioid mics on this, this, this. You, and, or if they, a producer tells you, go put a cardioid mic on that. And it's kind of like, well, if they're your boss in that situation, you really need to understand what it is they mean. So even if you understand the difference, you need to make sure that you understand it in conversations with people to really understand what they're talking about. So this next one is really often confused, especially from uh, people that are new to both concepts, and that's the difference between soundproofing and sound treatment. Now, a lot of people will throw the term soundproofing around when they actually mean sound treatment. So what's the difference here? Soundproofing is the practice of trying to get inside sound to stay in and outside sound to stay out. Meaning, let's say you're designing a soundproof booth. You want to make sure that the sound in that booth stays in the booth, and you want to make sure that sound from outside of the booth stays outside of the booth. That is soundproofing, and we use it, of course, when designing studios, when building control rooms and live rooms. We want things isolated. We want things decoupled. We don't want uh, any leakage between rooms, between things like that. We don't want to hear car sirens and things like that from the outside in our rooms. That's all soundproofing. Now, sound treatment is the practice of putting up acoustic devices, absorbers, diffusers, things like that, to make the room, the sound inside of the room, sound better or sound different. And these are very different practices. And in terms of like the actual uh, art of designing, you know, a soundproof system versus a sound a treated system, they're incredibly different practices. For example, for soundproofing, you need mass. 
and mass is not good for sound generally because for example if you're having if you're building a live room and you're trying to get good isolation between the live room and the control room you need mass and you need air to separate those rooms well when the mass of the walls is denser and denser and denser to prevent vibrations to prevent uh, you know sound from passing through the wall that makes the reflections inside of that room stronger right because the sound isn't passing through it's reflecting so soundproofing and sound treatment often kind of work in opposition to each other as a room gets more dense and harder for sound to escape it makes sound stronger inside and harder to escape <laughs> so that generally means the room needs to be treated now of course with proper design and angles and sizes and dimensions you can try to alleviate a lot of those issues without needing tons of treatment but treatment is used in live rooms and control rooms to control decay frequency response all of the above again a lot of them use similar materials wood fiberglass etc all these things but they're for very different purposes okay so don't get those confused and make sure when you are talking to someone about oh i need advice on soundproofing or i need advice on sound treatment you're really uh talking about what you're actually needing here's another set of acoustics terms that are commonly confused diffusion deflection reflection and diffraction Okay, they're really close to each other, so let's try to explain briefly what each one really is. Diffusion is the way that sound is evenly spread in a room. So a perfectly diffused environment is one in which the sound is the same at every point in the environment. Now, diffusion or diffusers are devices that we use in acoustics and acoustic engineering where we tr attempt to create a more diffuse field in the room and diffusers do that by reflecting sound at different angles at different intensities at different phases at different so to try to create a more balanced even spread of reflections throughout the room. You can almost think about it like if you're shading something while drawing, you know, you can't just do a bunch of thick lines and make it look even. You have to do lots of small, small, small strokes to get an even balance to where the shading looks natural and real and cohesive and consistent. Because otherwise, you'll be able to see the lines. It's kind of how I look at it. Uh, it's not a perfect analogy, but anyway. Deflection is a term that we don't really use a lot in acoustics when talking about sound waves. I think it's just a commonly confused term because it's so similar to diffraction and reflection, but deflection is a thing. And in, in structural engineering, deflection is the degree to which a structural element is displaced under a load. An example of that in acoustics might be if you are trying to decouple something using springs, okay, once you, let's say you're uh, using uh, springs to hang 
something from the ceiling, from the rafters, say uh, an air conditioning unit, which some people have done. They use springs and things like that. How much the springs expand when they are placed on, uh, when the load is placed on them, that is the, uh, the amount of deflection from its resting place, basically. So using these data, you can calculate how much decoupling is actually going on. But in physics, deflection refers to the change in an object's acceleration as a consequence of contact with a surface or a collision with a surface um, or the influence of a field. So I can see how that is commonly confused. Essentially, in, in audio, I guess the closest thing we would have talking about deflection would be if a sound wave hits a wall um, and then slows down slightly in the process, which we don't really deal with deflection when it comes to that. Um, so deflection, like I said, not a term we generally use a lot in, in audio, uh, somewhat in acoustics, but try not to get that confused with reflection. Okay. Reflection is a more appropriate term when talking about sound, which of course refers to sound waves hitting a surface and then bouncing or reflecting back uh, back outward. Okay, reflection is really commonly used when we're talking about acoustics, when we're talking about reverb, when we're talking about decay, and we're talking about, uh, you know, room acoustics and room modes and standing waves and all kinds of things. Reflection is a, is a much better, more accurate, precise term for what we're talking about here. Now, diffraction describes how sound waves bend or change direction as they travel around edges of obstacles and barriers. Um, high frequencies are very easily uh, stopped by barriers, as you should probably know. You know, you can put your hand in front of your mouth and the low frequencies still escape and go through your hand and go around your hand very easily, uh, but the high frequencies are very easily stopped. Uh, some people would also describe uh, diffraction as kind of like if you open up a door, some sound is going to go through the door, some sound is going to be stopped by the walls around the door. Um, low frequencies are probably going to have a pretty easy time going right out the door. Um, so look up diffraction. There are great pictures and descriptions of it all over the uh, all over the internet and in books. And it's important to understand in some ways we don't really use it in a practical sense. But again, it is indeed a term used in sound and in acoustics and in speaker design and in acoustic design. Uh, it's a, it's, it is an important term. But those are the differences between diffusion, deflection, reflection, and diffraction. Another commonly confused audio term is the difference between active and passive when we're talking about, you know, devices like active versus passive ribbon microphones or active versus passive direct boxes or even active versus passive guitar pickups. So what's the difference? In the simplest terms, something that is active requires power to operate and something that is passive does not. Now, typically we're going to be talking about passive versus active in in regards to an entire circuit because there are passive components like resistors, capacitors, inductors, and a lot of transformers and di and even diodes that are all technically passive devices, meaning they don't need power to work. But active devices are, you know, things like vacuum tubes or transistors 
or uh, often ICs or integrated circuits. Now, the, the thing you need to know is when we're talking about components, that's one thing, but most of what we talk about is active versus passive circuits. Like an active direct box can still have passive components like resistors and, you know, things like that in it. But a passive direct box does not have any active components, which means it doesn't require any power. Um, just like most guitars are going to be using passive pickups, which don't require a battery or anything like that. But EMG, for example, is one of the most famous makers of active pickups, which do require a battery. And of course, we have active and passive DIs, active and passive ribbon microphones. Uh, and what's the difference between these, uh, you know, in practice? Really, it's just differences in sound. You know, there's nothing better or worse about an active versus a passive. Um, there are just differences in the design and in the functionality. For example, active ribbon mics typically have a preamp built in. So they need phantom power, but they allow for uh, extra gain to be added on the output, meaning active ribbon mics typically can output a much hotter signal than passive ribbon mics. And also with active direct boxes, the same is also true. Now, again, that doesn't mean that one is better than the other, and some would argue that less is more when it comes to circuitry, that passive devices are actually uh, more true to, you know, their, their sound as opposed to something that adds additional circuitry. But in my opinion, they're both great, just matters what you like for a given application. But that's really the primary difference that we're talking about, stuff that needs power versus stuff that doesn't. The next set of terms that often gets confused is the difference between unbalanced versus balanced versus mono versus stereo when it comes to cabling and connections. So let's tackle these one at a time. Unbalanced cables are cables that carry the signal with a single terminal, meaning you're going to have a ground, typically, and the signal will be carried across one other terminal, uh, such as a guitar cable, which is, that's why it's called TS cables, for tip and sleeve. Tip carries the audio signal, and sleeve is the ground. Now, balanced connections carry the signal on two terminals, meaning you have a positive and a negative, and then you also have a ground. Now, I wanted to point out that I'm not talking about balanced inputs versus outputs when it comes to talking about uh, pieces of gear. I'm talking about cabling. Now, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to balanced versus unbalanced as it applies to mono versus stereo. So when we're talking about something like a guitar cable, which is an unbalanced cable, you're carrying a mono signal. Now, when you're talking about a, an XLR cable for a microphone, that is a balanced signal there because you have a positive and a negative and a ground, three pins on an XLR cable. But when talking about mono versus stereo in regards to balanced versus unbalanced, it's important to note that just because something is stereo does not mean it's balanced. Now, technically speaking, balanced stereo needs five pins. You need a positive and negative for the left. You need a positive and negative for the right and a shared ground. That is an actual balanced stereo setup. So you'd have essentially an XLR cable for the left and an XLR cable for the right. 
Now, unbalanced stereo is typically what we see with a consumer headphone jacks, right? We have one headphone jack. And in these unbalanced stereo setups, we have uh, three pins, you know, tip ring sleeve, but one is carrying the left, one is carrying the right, and they share a ground. So that's really just an, inf- an efficient way to carry stereo, but it is unbalanced, even though it's using a, a, an XLR connector. So don't just assume that because something involves an XLR that it's necessarily balanced. Now, if it's a mono signal traveling down an XLR cable, that is balanced. But I would like to say there are some XLR cables out on the market that are unbalanced, and they've done this by bridging uh, some of the pins inside. You might see this on a cable that's going XLR to TS, So make sure that you test that out and make sure that's correct. You can get a cable tester. I use the EBTEC cable tester, the 6-in-1, the big blue thing, and test all my cables that way. It's a really handy tool to have around to make sure all the pins are as they say they are. So what does it really mean to be balanced? What that means is that uh, the signal typically goes through the positive terminal, but then the signal is also represented out of phase on the negative terminal, which prevents noise because the noise that exists between those two lines can cancel out being opposite phases. So that's one of the main reasons that for studio gear, we use balanced cables. Balanced cables, because they're less prone to noise, can travel much farther distances without loss or degradation. Whereas instrument cables, TS cables for guitar, bass, you know, whatever, after about 20 feet, 30 feet, they start to lose a lot of clarity and top end, and they need to be buffered. Now, when we're talking about buffering as it comes to, you know, sending signals like guitar signals or whatever over long distances, that's dealing with impedance. And impedance will definitely affect the way that uh, a balanced system or unbalanced system behaves. And that's something that we'd have to probably say for another show. Impedance is a big topic to talk about. But uh, primarily, I just wanted you to understand the difference between unbalanced, balanced, and as that applies also to mono versus stereo. Here's another noob alert uh, term that's commonly confused, which is the difference between overdubs and punch-ins. Okay, so an overdub is something that you record over an existing track. So let's say you tracked live in a room two guitars, bass, and drums, an overdub would be coming back later and adding in a piano. Okay, that's an overdub. But a punch-in is a place in the recording where you start recording. For example, let's say you recorded that two guitars, bass, drums, band again, and you said, I need to punch in uh, at the second chorus and fix my guitar. That's not really an overdub. I mean, kind of, you are overdubbing the guitar, but what you're really doing is punching in the guitar. Overdubbing is, is really something that's added on top. And again, how much does this really matter? Not very much, but I just wanted to clear up what the terms mean. 
Another term that's often confused in the guitar world or the keys world and even the mixing world is the difference between vibrato versus tremolo. And this one's actually pretty simple, but it's been commonly confused even by amp makers and pedal makers for years and years and years. But technically speaking, tremolo is an oscillation in volume and vibrato is an oscillation in pitch. Okay, so vibrato is like a singer or a string player, you know, shifting their pitch up and down, you know, but going sharp, flat, sharp, flat, sharp, flat, sharp, flat, right? But uh, tremolo is cutting in and out the volume by a varying degree. So tremolo would be like, that's tremolo, right? It's, it's It's still an oscillation. It's still a pulse, but it's not in pitch. It's in volume. Now, both of these things can have different wave shapes, which is essentially describing how that oscillator oscillates, how it goes up and down in pitch. Does it do it really aggressively? Like, uh, that would be like a square vibrato. And a square tremolo would be like, uh, 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 right? But a more sine wave type tremolo would be something like, right? Uh, so it's it's a more smooth wave shape. It's describing how that is oscillating from, you know, the full volume to the quieter volume. And another commonly confused part of this is that tremolo has to go from sound on to sound off, which is not true. Tremolo can be in varying degrees, just like vibrato can. Uh, a really wide vibrato would be going like, like that's big pitched, you know, differences there. And a really wide tremolo would be on to off, basically, like a stutter, like, uh, 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 that would essentially be like really deep tremolo from, you know, fully on to fully silent. But that can also be, you know, uh, uh, adjusted just like a vibrato for, you know, sort of the depth in terms of how much variation is there from, you know, the loudest part to the quietest part. And with vibrato, how much sharp or flat are we varying this sound or oscillating the sound? So that is the difference between vibrato and tremolo. Here's a simple one. The difference between wave files and broadcast wave files. Now, they're both wave files. I just want to clear that up. They are both uh, they both have the same extension .wav. They're the exact same thing in every way except broadcast wave or BWF broadcast wave format stores metadata with information about the audio, things like the title, the author, date, time, whatever, as well as the original timestamp of the audio within the session. To be honest, there's no reason to not use Broadcast Wave. If anything, it helps to create more seamless transfers between different DAWs. For example, uh, the guy that I use a lot for session keys records in Pro Tools, and I record in Nuendo. But we have a consistent way that we set up our sessions so that when he sends me files, he doesn't have to consolidate everything from the beginning to the end when he sends me files. He just sends me all of the WAV files in a folder, and when I drop them into Nuendo and uh, select essentially through my menus, move to origin, that origin point where those were originally recorded is encoded within the WAV file because he records in Broadcast WAV. Now, the file extension, again, is still .wav, 
and the file size is only slightly larger than Wave, but not much at all. So that's the difference. Now, this next one is so commonly confused and so often mixed up that I actually had an entire show about it, and that's the difference between phase and polarity. Now, if you want to learn more about the nuts and bolts of this, go listen to that show and go check out my video on YouTube about phase versus polarity. But the short version is phase refers to the timing of waves, and it is frequency dependent, meaning that it is highly affected by the frequency of those waves. Polarity refers to positive and negative parts of a wave or of a circuit. So, for example, the uh, red and black wires on your uh, home stereo speakers, flipping the polarity is the equivalent to flipping the red and the black or the positive and negative. So it is not frequency dependent, okay? All it does is reverse the positive and negative parts of a wave, regardless of the frequency. But phase does not do that. Phase refers to timing. So as you change the timing, uh, you might not get things lined up in terms of phase because frequencies have different timings as well. Not different speeds per se, but they have different uh, wavelengths and therefore the number of cycles per second is different. That's what frequencies are. You know, more cycles equal a higher frequency. So again, if you want to get into the nuts and bolts of that, go check out the show where we talk about that. But again, the basic difference is that phase refers to timing of waves and it is frequency dependent. Polarity refers to a positive and negative part of a wave or of a circuit, and it is not frequency dependent. So the next one is the difference between harmonics and overtones and harmonic distortion and harmonic content and how all of those things sort of relate together. Now, I've actually considered doing an entire show about this because it's a really deep topic that's fascinating to me, but I just want to go briefly into what these things are. So harmonics are additional tones above the fundamental tone that help create an instrument's frequency makeup and what it truly sounds like. For example, the low E on a guitar, the fundamental tone, the actual tone that that E is, is 82.5 hertz. Now, as you know, uh, a guitar low E string doesn't just sound like an 82.5 hertz sine wave, right? It sounds like a guitar. Why is that? And that's because of all the harmonics above the fundamental and the different frequencies that we're hearing. All those frequencies combine to create this sort of singular sound that we hear as a guitar. It's pretty fascinating, really. And it's because of harmonics and it's because of these, these specific frequency makeup of, of each of these in instruments that a guitar sounds different than a cello, which sounds different from a flute, which sounds different from, you know, a piano. The frequency content of all these is really what helps determine how an instrument sounds and what it sounds like. So what's the difference between a harmonic and an overtone? Well, typically a harmonic is something that is related or an, an integer multiple of the fundamental frequency. But overtones can be harmonic or inharmonic. And inharmonic overtones is a frequency that it's a non-integer multiple or something unrelated to the fundamental frequency. I'll explain. I'm sure you've all tried to tune a rack tom or a floor tom on a drum kit. And every now and then you'll hear these 
tones that don't have anything to do with the pitch of the drum. Those would be inharmonic frequencies or uh, inharmonic overtones. Now, often when we're talking about musical instruments, we're going to have inharmonic overtones. But what we don't want is... Uh, a strong presence of those, right? Like they're gonna exist. They're just gonna exist from things vibrating, you know, especially with like acoustic instruments like drums or uh, guitars or pianos. Lots of things are vibrating and vibrations create frequency, you know, things that we can hear, frequencies we can hear. The idea is to minimize those uh, inharmonic overtones so that we get a nice pure sound uh, that's rich and doesn't sound out of tune and doesn't sound strange and clustered in a weird way. Um, So like I said, they are going to exist. It's just the balance of them needs to be right. Now, there's also a relationship of fundamentals versus overtones and harmonics in a sort of uh, in a sort of series, and I'll explain. This is another reason why this term is so commonly confused. When we talk about the primary frequency, the primary note that we're talking about, we call that the fundamental. So let's say a hundred hertz, right? Nice easy number. Now that's what we would call the first harmonic or first partial. The second harmonic is the frequency times two. So X times two. That would be the second harmonic, the second partial, but we call that the first overtone. So it's offset from the harmonic. So uh, X times three would be your third harmonic, but your second overtone. So we call it an overtone because it's over how many times over the fundamental. But again, that term can be a little misleading because we have harmonic overtones, which follow that series, but then we also have inharmonic overtones, which do not follow that series. It's not, you know, 118 hertz. That would be inharmonic because it's like slightly sharp in compared to 100. And it's not like 100 times 2 or times 3 or times 4. It's 100 times, you know, 1.18 or whatever. Uh, You know, that's not what we're talking about. Um, So... That's the basic difference between harmonics and overtones. When you're buying an instrument or listening to an instrument or recording an instrument, it's important to take notes of the type of overtones you're hearing. Are you hearing any that are strange or inharmonic, that sound out of tune? Where might those be coming from? For example, on a rack tom, if the top and bottom heads are not tuned well together, you can get some strange inharmonic overtones uh, that make the tom sound out of tune. And also because on a tom, typically you're going to have six to ten lugs on a tom, you could have different pitches at each of those lugs, which means you could have inharmonic overtones creeping in sort of uh, disp- like distorting in a way your your true pitch that you're trying to hear and messing up that pitch and messing up that frequency balance. So that's the basic difference between harmonics and overtones and how they all relate together. Here's another pair of terms that are often confused. Resonance versus sustain. Now, something that is really resonant typically has you know, a very excitable frequency spectrum, meaning um, it vibrates a lot and creates lots of different harmonics and it's very rich and things like that. That's something that's resonant. 
um, and it has a nice full sound. But sustain has to do with the length of time that something takes to decay. So a guitar with a lot of resonance might have a lot of sustain, but that doesn't necessarily mean a guitar with a lot of sustain has a lot of resonance. So think about the difference between those two. Look them up if you're more if you want to learn more about the difference between those two. But they are different. So I've heard people say things like, "Oh, that guitar or that piano is so resonant," and what they really just mean is it has a lot of sustain. But I've also heard people say the the opposite, like, "Oh man, that's got so much sustain to the sound." But what they really mean is they're hearing the resonance of that of that device. So they are related, but they're definitely different terms. Here's a couple of digital terms that are often confused or perhaps even just misunderstood. Uh, we're talking about bit depth, sample rate, dither, and clocking. So what do all these do and wh- how are they all related? Well, let's start by talking about sampling rate and sampling. So what are we talking about here? When we say we have a sampling rate of 44.1 kilohertz, what that means is how many audio samples are taken every second to recreate that audio waveform. So, for example, when we're converting analog audio to digital audio, we have to sample it because we have this signal, this analog, continuous analog signal. The digital device, the analog to digital converter, has to sample it, take samples of the loudness and the frequency content, essentially, of each of those as, as many times as 384,000 or whatever the highest sampling rate we can do now in, in you know, pro audio is. But for the most part, that's 44,100 samples per second. Now, that might sound like a lot, but as you know, we have 48 kilohertz, 88.2, 96 kilohertz, etc. We have high sample, high, much higher sample rates than that, which in theory will recreate that continuous uh, analog waveform more accurately, in theory. But again, if you look at these things on a scope, it's not uh, stair-stepped like a lot of people think. That's not what happens. Um, The analog-to-digital converter does recreate this sort of continuous waveform, but in theory, the uh, higher sampling rates do so more smoothly. Um, But it's not stair-stepped. That's a common misconception. So what is clocking? A clock is basically a device that regulates the sampling rate, meaning two things. Number one, it makes sure that you are indeed at exactly the sample rate you're set. So let's say 96K. If you're at 96K, first of all, it makes sure that you are exactly at 96K. But more importantly, it makes sure that the spacing between the samples is exactly one ninety-six thousandth of a second, right? Because if it's 96K, that's 96,000 samples per second. So you want to make sure that all of those samples are perfectly evenly spaced. Not, you know, one is a microsecond and the other is two microseconds and the other one's 1.5 and the next one is, you know, it's not like that. It's exactly one ninety-six thousandth of a second per sample. Now, clocks come in lots of different forms. Any converter is going to have a clock in it. It's a myth to say that external clocking is necessarily better or worse. Um, it, It really just depends on your particular situation and your particular converter. Because there are some clocks in certain pieces of gear that I would argue rival some of the best external clocks. 
And there have been some studies done and white papers written that show that if you're only using one digital device, say you've got an interface and that's it, the internal clock will perform the best. But if you're using multiple devices, I can tell you from personal experience, if you're using, say, uh, a digital mic preamp that has ADAT outputs and an interface and an uh, A to D converter for mass for your mastering path or something, I can tell you from experience, an external clock does seem to work way better in those instances when you're trying to connect multiple pieces of digital gear. But if you just have one, if you just have the interface, I'm pretty sure the internal clock will be fine. Now, you can upgrade the clock. You can get external clocks. And there are mod services from places like Black Lion Audio that actually will mod the clock uh, or they make an external clock as well. But that's really all clocking is. Now, what does bit depth have to do with? The bit depth essentially really only affects the signal-to-noise ratio of the audio but really what it does is it corresponds to the resolution of each sample. So if you're at 44.1 kilo, kilohertz sample rate, it refers to how many possible, essentially how many possible integer values or levels there are for each sample. If you're familiar with MIDI, you know that MIDI, you can have 127 different values of velocity, for example, of how hard you're hitting. Well, it's similar to that when it comes to bit depth. So if you have, for example, 8-bit audio, like old Nintendo games, you have 256 possible inter integer values per sample, which means essentially negative 128 to plus 127, because zero is included also. Um, now with 16-bit audio, we have a dynamic range of 96 dB, uh, technically speaking, 96.33 dB, but there are 65,536 possible integer values, which means negative 32,768 to plus 32,767, which is a much, much more accurate representation of level and uh, which has a much higher signal-to-noise ratio. Now, most of what we work in now is 24-bit or 32-bit float, and 24-bit audio has a, a dynamic range or signal-to-noise ratio of 144.49 decibels, which means 16,777,216 possible integer values per sample. That is plenty, okay? The human hearing range is generally accepted to be about 140 decibels from the lowest sound we can hear until the highest sound when our ears essentially blow and stop working. And 24-bit audio has a signal-to-noise ratio of 144.49 decibels. Now, 32-bit audio has a much higher resolution even than 24, a signal-to-noise ratio of 192.66 decibels, with 4,294,967,296 possible integer values per sample. Okay, so I know I'm kind of bogging you down with pointless figures here, but what's the point of all this? The uh, bit depth essentially refers to the resolution of the samples, but in real terms, what it, what it uh, equates to is signal-to-noise ratio, and that's really it, okay? Um, again, a lot of people think about digital audio in this sort of stair-stepped format, and that's actually a common misconception. Um, digital audio is not stair-stepped. 
so basically your bit depth really just has to do with your signal to noise ratio in in the end that's really what it has to do with we don't really have to worry about that much anymore because we're all pretty much working in 24-bit or 32-bit. Now, how do we go between those rates? Because we release songs at 44.1K and uh, 16-bit. That's sort of the standard for wave releases. I don't know why. I don't know why we still do that. That's the CD standard. There's no reason for us to keep that standard anymore. I, I, I still am confused as to why we haven't moved away from 16-bit. Um, I, I, it's just baffling to me. Why, why you know, don't we just all stay in 24 or 32-bit? Um, but we use dither to go between sampling rates. So if you have to go from a 24-bit session down to a 16-bit file, we use dither. And dither or dithering is a process of sort of trying to mask some of the issues from quantization errors that go between, uh, you know, higher to a lower sample rate. Now, I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of dither. You can read more about that in Bob Katz's book, Mastering Audio. Essentially, dither is just a, a plugin or processor that we use to help smooth the transition between different bit depths. And uh, most of the time, the only person that's going to be using dither in the chain is going to be the mastering engineer when he goes from your session, your mix, down to 16-bit uh, final master. So really, as a mixer, you don't have to worry about it much. You definitely don't have to worry about it in tracking, really. Um, for the most part, like I said, now we're all working in 24-bit audio, uh, sometimes in 32-bit. And I would also like to point out that you only have to dither once. You don't have to dither from 32 to 24 and then from 24 to 16. You can dither from 32 to 16 if you've got a 32-bit float session. Um, you don't need to do it twice. And I will also say that in terms of uh, file size, um, a 44.1 recording uh, sample rate is going to be half the size of an 88.2 recording. So that is a direct doubling. But the difference between, say, 16-bit and 24-bit you know, it's not going to be that drastic. And even the distance, the, the difference between 16-bit and 32-bit is not that drastic, okay? It's not linear like sample rate is in that regard to file size. Um, but it does increase the file size a little bit to have higher uh, bit depths, but not a whole lot. I couldn't possibly have a show about confusing audio terms without talking about tone words. Now, I kind of briefly mentioned this earlier, but tone words are words that we use to describe sound. Now, I love the quote from, I think it's Andrew Sheps, who says, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. You know, there is a certain point when it's like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, what are we really doing here? It's kind of pointless because we have all these terms that we use and they are confusing. So I'm going to list some of them and try to describe what they mean, and why we might use them to describe sounds. And I'm sure you've heard these a million times, but uh, I want to try to advise you to, you know, maybe some of them are better to use than others. So when we're talking about low frequencies, um, things that have a lot of fre low frequencies or, low f or not enough low frequencies, you're going to hear words like uh, fullness or fatness. Uh, if something is thin, it doesn't have a lot of low frequencies, or wimpy or small. Uh, if something has a lot of low frequencies, it might be bassy or beefy or have a lot of oomph um, or sub. You know, those are other terms we use. When we're talking about 
low-mid frequencies, things that we'll often hear are things like fullness or warmth. Uh, If there's too much low-frequency content, something might be called muddy or boxy or murky or unclear. Um, You know, there are lots of terms for low frequencies, but I find that a lot of them involve, you know, hey, we have too much low-mid frequencies. (laughs) Um, for mid-range frequencies, um, which here we're talking about maybe, I don't know, 400 hertz to 2K, uh, we have terms like boxy or honky or brassy, quacky or clocky or knocky. <laughs> um, a lot of times, sometimes people will describe it as character or, you know, uh, it, it's a really wide range of frequencies, the mid-range is. And so it's a little bit hard to talk about that. But um, if something has too much knock, it probably means it has a little bit too much like 700 hertz, 800 hertz, 1K, something like that. Um, now, high mid-frequencies, terms we'll often hear are edginess or edge brittleness, harshness, presence, clarity, crack, smack, things like that. And we're talking about between like, I don't know, 2 and 6K, 2 and 5K, something like that. Um, A lot of these frequencies, you know, if somebody says my vocal sounds harsh or that snare drum needs more crack, they might be talking about these frequencies up in the, you know, 3, 4, 5K region, something like that. Um, High frequencies, this is going to be like 6K and up. We're talking about terms like sibilant and pretty and shiny or uh, something that has sheen or sometimes even clarity or something that's bright or dull or dark or something like that. Now, again, the reason I bring up these terms is to not, not necessarily say that you should use them. I say you should use them carefully. And there are terms I would also say to use with extreme caution. And I'm going to list those now. Terms to use with caution, analog, digital, transparent, natural, rich, deep, warm, open, organic, raw, real, spacious, brilliant, big. Okay, these terms, I say to avoid these and use with caution because they don't really say anything. For example, if we say that a sound um, is bassy, that's a pretty obvious thing, that it has a lot of low frequencies. Or if we say that something has a lot of knock, it typically means it's going to have a, you know, a significant amount of mids. Or if we say that something is harsh, it probably means there's you know, a lot of high mid frequencies. Um, or at least uh, you know, a, a lot of them up in that area you know, that might be being overshadowed by something. Anyway, um, but when it comes to things like open, what is an open sound? There's a million different descriptions for what that could mean. Does it mean that, is it a frequency thing or is it a panning thing? Is it something that's wide? Um, you know, I don't, that, that doesn't really tell me anything. Same with organic. What does organic mean? I mean, obviously we'd love to say that something that sounds organic sounds very real, but at the same time, that's very subjective too. What is something that sounds real? Something that sounds like you're in the room? Or because to some people, something that's organic is more of a tone thing than it is like a realism thing. So that's one of those reasons I, I try to say, try to avoid those. Same with like natural and spacious. It's like, what does that really mean? So terms that I find generally reliable, okay, that I would recommend using, 
things like bright and dark. Most people uh, are familiar with that term, especially like guitar players and bass players. You know, if they want to darken up their tone, they're going to turn down their tone knob. And most guitar amps and bass amps are going to have a, you know, well, not most, but a lot of them are going to have a bright switch. And that's very easy to hear what that means. Typically, brightness or darkness deals with high frequencies. If something is bright, it has a significant you know, amount of high frequencies uh, in relation to the lows, and something is dark, it doesn't have a lot of high frequencies. So those are generally pretty reliable. So is fat and thin. So if something is fat sounding, it has a lot of low frequencies. If something's thin sounding, it doesn't have a lot of low frequencies. Um, that is a pretty reliable term. Harsh and edgy or aggressive, aggressive. those are also pretty reliable. If something is harsh, it typically has a lot of high-mid frequencies. And this could be caused by just a relationship balance, so there are more high-mid frequencies than there need to be. But it could also be a balance of, say, distortion. So if something has too much distortion, it's going to have a lot of harmonic content, and so it might actually need to be less distorted. Not necessarily EQ'd, if that makes sense. But again, those are fairly reliable. Muddy or murky, those are also pretty reliable terms. Those generally mean that something has uh, too much low-mid information. Or perhaps it could mean not enough high-frequency information. Something sounds unclear. That's a pretty reliable term. If somebody says it sounds muddy, right? It means it's not clear. Uh, boxy or scooped, okay? Those typically refer to mids. So if something sounds boxy, it's going to have a lot of mid-range content. And if something is scooped, it has not enough mid-range content. That's another t set of terms that tends to be pretty reliable when talking with musicians and clients about the sound they want. Does it sound too boxy? Uh, that typically, they'll, they'll be able to easily understand what that means, even if it's not a term they throw around a lot. Dry and wet. Okay, now I will say there is a catch to this one. I'll tell that story in a second. But dry and wet typically refers to effects, right? If something is dry, it has no effects. If something's really wet or drenched, as people will say, uh, it has a lot of effects, a lot of reverb, a lot of delay. However, uh, while that term is reliable, I once had a client that um, sent me some mix notes. And on one of the songs, he said, my voice sounds really dry. And I was like, what are you talking about, man? I've got like, I am drenching you in reverb right now. And he's like, I don't know, man, it just sounds dry. And I was like, okay. And long story short, through a series of mix notes, um, I realized that what he meant was his voice sounds scratchy and like, you know, like his actual throat is dry. Um, so it sounded kind of harsh to him and kind of like edgy. And when he was singing certain notes, it was kind of distorting in a funny way that he didn't like. It sounded like he had dry throat. And so that's what he meant when he said dry. And so you could place blame on both of us for that. I would not exempt myself from that. Like, oh, well, he should have known. I really should have asked him to be more specific, you know, because I just assumed he knew the difference between dry and wet when we're talking about effects. But he's talking about a dry throat, a dry sounding voice, uh, which actually, I mean, that's a thing. That's a very real thing. So that term is generally reliable, but watch out for that. I had never experienced that until a year or two ago. Another term, a set of, a couple of terms that are generally pretty reliable, um, close or far. You know, that thing sounds too upfront or close, or that thing sounds far away. Those are generally pretty clear indicators of what they're actually saying. 
Now, again, there is a catch to this one because we could be talking about something in terms of tonality um, or in terms of compression, but we also could be talking about effects. Like if something sounds too too close or too upfront, it might mean that it's too dry sounding. Uh, And again, I mean with effects. But if something is too... uh, far away sounding it might be too much effects but it might also just be kind of buried in the mix right that so that's a careful term but I, it, it is pretty reliable wide and narrow those are generally very reliable terms if something is wide or narrow it's pretty obvious what we're talking about right like uh, a piano or a pair of guitars or cymbals oh i want my crash cymbals wider okay that's pretty obvious. That means you want them more to the left and more to the right than they currently are. Or I want the guitars to be a little bit narrower. Okay. That means not as hard left and right as they are. Okay. Those are generally pretty, pretty reliable terms. Another pretty set, you know, good set of terms for clients and talking with people is louder and quieter. Okay. That's a simple way to say it because again, you can't always assume, you know, when somebody says like, Oh, turn that up by a DB. Maybe they don't actually have a good reference in their mind for how loud 1 dB is, which is not a big change. Um, now, maybe they do. That's another problem. Sometimes it's great working with, uh, it's great working with people that understand the audio terms, and uh, if they give you mix notes that are very specific, like turn that up by a dB and a half, turn that down by a dB, that can actually be really helpful. But other times, they're just saying that because... They think that's kind of like the terminology and, and they want to talk your language and what you want. Um, but it's almost more helpful for me if somebody says, uh, you know, turn that up a little bit versus that that's so quiet, that's super quiet, or I can't hear it, or, you know, something more dramatic and clear of what, they, what they're hearing, you know, like that's way too loud. That to me is more useful than turn that down by 3 dB. Because even though... On paper, it might seem easier to just say, well, I'll just turn it down 3 dB. You really need to listen to it in context. Maybe it's 3.5 dB. Maybe it's 2. Maybe it's 4. Maybe it's 8. You know, you can't just go, you can't just mix by numbers. So I find that when talking with clients, it's useless to say like, should I turn that up by a dB? You know, I find that terms like a little bit or a hair or a lot are much more usable in real world situations. To me, I look at it like a hair. If somebody says like, turn that up just by a hair, that to me means like a dB, maybe a dB and a half, just a little bit, tiny, tiny bit. But if somebody says, you know, turn that up a little, I generally think like two, three dB, something like that. If somebody says, turn that up a lot, that's where I start thinking into more like five, six dB. Uh, So those terms are actually more usable to me than specific numbers because I don't necessarily trust other people's numbers over what I'm seeing in my session that is not in front of their eyes, right? And even still, you shouldn't be mixing by numbers anyway, right? Like you should be listening. You turn it. If somebody says turn that up, you turn it up until it sounds right. Who cares how many decibels it is, right? Okay, so those are your audio terms, tone words, things like that. Hopefully those have given you some considerations or things to think about. The next set of commonly confused audio terms um, deal with level, mic level, instrument level, line level, and speaker level. 
So what's the difference between all four of these and, you know, which one is the loudest and which one uses what type of preamp and all of those things? So, and we also have consumer line level and we also have professional line level or consumer and pro, you know. So let's talk about these. Mic level is the lowest or weakest of all these and it requires a mic preamp to bring it up to line level. Now, we all know this. We have to use a microphone preamp with our microphones generally or some type of amplifier. Um, And typically, that's because the signal put out from microphones is very, very low in the millivolts. Very, very low. And so we need to amplify it so that it's at a more workable level. Line level signals are generally very hot uh, signals. These are the type of signals that comes out of recording gear, mic preamps. Um, you know, you work with line level when we're talking about compressors. You know, compressors are operating expecting a line level input and giving a line level output. Now, there are two types of line level signals. We talked about this a little bit on the previous show. Consumer line level is rated about minus 10 dBV. You'll find that on products like CD players, things like that. And professional or pro line level is rated plus 4 dBU, little u, and can be found in equipment like mixing boards, preamps, analog signal processors like compressors and EQs. And typically, uh, when we're dealing with audio gear, we're dealing with an impedance of 600 ohms. Most of our gear is going to be, you know, expecting that at the output. So line level is mostly what our gear operates. Now, instrument level is in between mic level and, and line level. It's not as loud as line level, but it's louder than mic level. We typically will still need a preamp. That's what This is the type of signal level that comes out of, like, guitars or basses or keyboards. Um, you know, some keyboards output line level, but you know, these will typically still need to be amplified and we still need to often use a direct box with these for the best results. Um, but it is not as weak as mic level. Now speaker level, um, after a line level signal goes to an amplifier or even an instrument level signal goes to an amplifier um, and when it's going out the output out of the uh, out of the circuit into a speaker jack which then goes to a speaker like I'm imagining like a guitar amp right so you go from the amp into a speaker cabinet um, these signals have uh, a really high voltage than a much higher voltage than line level and really require speaker cables uh, for a safe signal transfer. And speaker cables are generally much heavier gauge than say guitar cables or mic cables, much heavier gauge. And they can accommodate the wattage and the extra power and the voltage. So for example, um, if you're using a hundred watt amp, you generally need a pretty beefy speaker cable to safely transmit that signal um, with with such a high voltage. Um, And then if you're using a small amp, like a little 5 or 10 watt amp, you can get away with a pretty, pretty, you know, small gauge wire for that. But not still, even that is still much bigger than most mic cables. So that's the basic difference between all of those things. In general, the only way you'll have to worry about this is when dealing with things like you know, inputs on a mic preamp or on a desk. You know, you if you're using a microphone, you need to be accepting a mic level signal. Accepting a line level signal won't really do anything for you. It's not, it's expecting a much louder signal, much, much louder. So 
if you are similarly, if you're using a line level output, say from, you know, uh, your keyboard, maybe you've got a keyboard workstation or something that outputs line level. Um, if you put that into a mic preamp expecting mic level, you are going to get a really big dose of loud. <laughs> okay, you don't want that. Um, now, a lot of mic preamps are going to have separate inputs for line level and mic level just as a safety feature, basically. And uh, it allows you to put them both on your patch base. You can patch in things uh, while mixing at line level or while recording at mic level. Um, so for me, generally what I do in most cases is use a DI and run all of my stuff at mic level. That's essentially what direct boxes do, is they convert instrument level or line level down to mic level so that everything is on a level playing field. That allows you to take that hot signal out of a guitar or out of a keyboard or something and now run it into... Uh, a direct box, which converts it down to mic level. So now all of your microphones and your direct instruments are coming in at an equal sort of uh, playing field, which allows you to have a much more consistent reference in terms of volume at the mic preamp. So that's one reason that direct boxes are really useful, because otherwise you'd have to have a mic preamp with some sort of jack on the front that would accept line level, or your interface would need something that could accept that, it can, you know, it, direct boxes really solve a lot of headaches in that regard. So that's the difference between all four of those. Now, the next set of terms I want to talk about are a bit confusing, but they're really important. And it's the difference between ground, ground loops, ground lifts, and ground loop isolators. So let's first talk about what ground is, okay? So the official definition that I received for this, uh, a ground is a direct electrical connection to the earth, a connection to a particular point in an electrical or electronic circuit, or an indirect connection that operates as the result of capacitance between wireless equipment and the earth or a large mass of conductive material. Electrical grounding is important because it provides a reference voltage level called the zero potential or ground potential against which other voltages in a system are established and measured. An effective electrical ground connection also minimizes the susceptibility of equipment to interference, reduces the risk of equipment damage due to lightning, eliminates electrostatic buildup that can damage system components, and helps protect personnel who service and repair electrical, electronic, and computer systems. Okay, so what does that really mean for us? Basically, every piece of equipment that we use is going to have some sort of a ground connection. Okay, on a three-prong power plug here in the United States, you're going to have your positive, your negative, and your ground, basically. Similarly, on an XLR cable, you have positive, negative, and ground. On a guitar cable, you have uh, the positive and then a ground. So the ground is a common thing between all of these pieces of gear. Now, the pr what's the problem with ground? Why do we have problems with it? Well, mostly it's because of ground loops. Okay, it's not ground that's the problem. It's because of ground loops. Now, ground loops exist when two or more devices are connected to a common ground through different paths. So what that means is you get noise, you get hum, what we commonly refer to as 60 cycle hum or 60 hertz hum. Uh, now, if you're in your control room 
and you have that on one breaker, and then you have your live room on another breaker, and you plug in a tube microphone to its power supply in your live room, and then you plug that in to a snake, which goes to a mic preamp in your control room, you have two paths to ground. Because you've got the ground from the power supply on the tube mic in the live room to that breaker, but then you also have a ground on the microphone cable, which comes into the live room or the control room to your mic preamp, which is grounded in here. That is an example of a ground loop. The only solution to really remove ground loops is to either A, figure out where these separate paths are coming from and make sure that you're only running one power line with one ground, meaning um, you could run a power line from your control room into your live room and plug in your uh, mic preamp or your, your power supply in there. Um, or, I mean, and this is the, that's probably the best way to do it. The safest way to do it. I mean, is to have it all on one circuit. So everything's going to one thing. Um, the only other way to really do it is to safely isolate the ground using a ground loop isolator or isolation transformer. Um, also note that ground loops are really pesky and can show up in a lot of different ways. One thing that people often confuse ground loops for is the 60 cycle hum from guitar pickups. And it's not really a ground loop. Single coil pickups hum because essentially they're picking up interference from magnetic fields. Now, those magnetic fields are caused by pieces of equipment, lights, all kinds of things. Um, and that is generally oscillating, at least in the U.S., at 60 hertz and all the harmonics of that. So 120 hertz, 180 hertz, blah, 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 blah. Now, the magnetic fields couple inductively to the guitar wiring and interfere with the pickups, which generates this... 60 cycle hum. Now it's very quiet, but the problem is your guitar signal is then amplified by a guitar amp, which further amplifies that 60 cycle hum. Now, how can you tell the difference between a ground loop and interference? So if you're using a guitar with single coils or a bass, uh, and you turn different directions, you know, you're turning your body, you know, towards your amp, away from your amp, you're standing in different spots, and the hum changes or goes away, then that's an interference problem. Now, the only ways to practically solve that is to either A, get humbuckers or humbucking pickups, B, stand in a spot with your guitar that doesn't have that interference, so you can kind of walk around and try to find a spot that the hum goes away, or C and or C, shield the guitar with copper tape, which is basically creating sort of a small Faraday cage. Even then, it doesn't completely prevent that stuff from happening because it, you're not, you know, shielding the top of the pickups. You're not shielding, you know, you can only go so much with that. Um, so really, uh, the most practical way to do that is the first two, either use a guitar with humbuckers or turn and stand in a different spot. Now, what's the difference between a ground lift and a ground loop isolator? Now, a ground lift is a device or switch that interrupts the ground loop between the equipment, preventing current flow along the shield between those two devices. In real-world terms, it disconnects the ground. That's really all a ground lift does. In, uh, like, direct boxes, you'll sometimes see a ground lift switch or a lift switch. In microphone and guitar signals, uh, ground lifts are generally safe to use. However, when dealing with power, 
ground lifts are not safe. And those are those little gray three-prong to two-prong adapters that you'll see, you know, at the hardware store or something. These are not safe. These are really only used for testing purposes, okay? Especially with audio gear, with guitar amps, things like that. All you're doing is removing the ground completely. And for when we're talking about power, that's not safe. When we're talking about the audio ground, like the ground that exists on the mic cable, you know, pin one, or the ground that exists on your guitar cable, which is the shield, that's okay. You'll find those, like I said, on um, on direct boxes and things like that. And what that's really doing is removing the ground from the direct box and using instead the ground from the mic preamp, essentially. Um, and that would happen if the direct box is, you know, connected to uh, a guitar, which is then connected to a guitar amp in the other room, and that ground is then isolated from the ground in the guitar room to the ground in the control room. So essentially, those are okay. Those are fine. They're safe when using on a direct box or like a radial SGI has a ground lift. A um, lot of things like that. Those are fine. But don't use those little three-prong to two-prong adapters, especially not on guitar amps or things like that. How So what can you do if that's basically the device you need, but that's unsafe? Well, that's where ground loop isolators come into play or isolation transformers. So these are devices that safely remove the ground from a circuit in powered situations. They isolate the ground rather than just removing it, which will really help with that unwanted hum. Uh, the best example I can think of is the Ebtech Humex, which is a little device, and it's meant for one piece of gear only. It's not meant for power strips. It's meant for one piece of gear at a time. Um, it's about 50 bucks, I think. But I own three of these things, and in a pinch, when you really can't do anything about the, uh, you know, the multiple paths to ground, these can be lifesavers. Now, I will say, I'll remind you, a lot of things when it comes to ground loops and ground lifts and, you know, uh, interference, it's really tricky. And sometimes it can be a nightmare to track down things like that. When in doubt, um, it's pretty much always recommended that your entire, all of your audio gear needs to be on one breaker or essentially one circuit, one path to ground. And you might say, well, I don't have enough power to handle that in terms of amperage. Like I don't have, um, you know, I'm not, I'm going to blow my breaker. I will say this, um, right now I'm standing in my control room. I have all of my equipment on. I have all of my preamps on, my compressors, my EQs, my barefoot speakers, my power amps for the headphones, my power amps for my NS10s. I've got, uh, you know, this obviously mic preamp. I've got my uh, effects rack in so that it has my spring reverbs. I've got my guitar, my pedals in. I've got my computer on. I've got all kinds of stuff on, and I am using 6.6 amps. Okay, that's not very much. Most uh, residential outlets are going to, or breakers, are going to blow at 15 amps. And I say blow, what I really mean is trip. Okay, you just reset it. 15 amps, that's more than double what I'm using now. Now, obviously, audio gear like mic preamps and things like that, they don't really use a lot of amperage. Um, but, you know... It really just depends on what you're using. A pedal board, for example, uh, might have, 
a two amp, uh, you know, power supply that can that can handle two amps, but it might not necessarily be using all of those. But I will say guitar amps and things like that tend to use a lot more. So I would try it. I would try to, you know, create a system where you're you're using different, um, you're using the same ground and trying to use one piece of gear for uh, all of your routing from there. For example, in my control room, I have a Furman P2400AR, which is a true power conditioner, um, and that is the only thing that's plugged into the wall. Every other piece of gear that I have plugs into that unit. So from that unit, I go to seven other Furmans, Furman power conditioners. Now, these are not really, you know, power conditioners. They're really just glorified power strips. This uh, big Furman, the P2400, actually does regulate voltage and keep things at a consistent voltage. The others are not voltage regulators. They're basically just power strips. Um, so I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven other Furmans uh, that all of these things go to. From those Furmans, they then go to the individual pieces of gear. And all of that still equates to one path to ground because all of those pieces of gear have three-prong plugs. Those go into the Furman, which has a three-prong plug. That single three-prong plug from all the Furmans go into my big boy Furman, my 2400, and that Furman goes into the wall with one single three-prong plug, one path to ground. Um, when you start dealing with different circuits in your in your uh, you know your junction box there, and you've got a breaker over there and a breaker over there, and you've got one for the outlets over here and one for the outlets in that room, you're dealing with multiple paths to ground. And you know, in most cases, depending on the specifics of how it's wired, but um, you really can run into these problems. It's so common, you wouldn't believe it. And a lot of times you'll experience these problems at venues when, for example, there's a different power source back at the booth than there is up on the stage, which is just a rookie mistake in my opinion. But, you know, you got to deal with what you got to deal with. Um, so again, the only way to really safely isolate things, if you do have that problem is with a ground loop isolator or an isolation transformer, um, rat or to, like I said, to run a power line from your control room. Now in my situation, I have an outlet. I have some outlets in the control, in the live room that actually are on different circuits. And if I happen to need those for any reason, sometimes I will get a hum. And in those cases, I will try to use a uh, ground lift isolator. But I also have um, a fail-safe power line run from my control room in the form of a power strip. And that power strip is kind of like a when in doubt. Uh, it's not the prettiest thing in the world. It's not as conveniently placed, but it will run power directly from my big 2400 AR Furman. And that way I can ensure, pretty much ensure, that I'm not going to get any ground loop issues. So again, I know a lot of this stuff is confusing. Please feel free to look up on the Recording Lounge website. There is a link to a document that talks all about ground loops and things like that. It's down in the resources page, the resource hub, if you will. 
Guys, that was the last confused audio term that I could think of, so I am going to sign off for today. I hope this show has really opened your eyes and given you a lot of different terms to think about. And if you have any other audio terms that you'd like me to talk about, things you're confused by, things you're struggling with, please send me an email at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. I'd be more than happy to consider doing a show about it. A lot of my favorite shows and some of my most popular shows have come from your suggestions. So don't be afraid to send me an email and request something. I'm always looking for new ideas for shows. And a lot of times, you know, it might be a couple months after getting an idea before I actually do a show about it because I have to kind of plan it out in my mind and, you know, make an outline. But in general, I really, I really do a lot of shows from show, so show suggestions from listeners. So please send me an email. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out our website, recordingloungepodcast.com. Make sure you check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash recordinglounge. Please consider supporting the podcast financially on Patreon uh, using a you know price per episode method or by doing a one-time or recurring donation with PayPal. You can go to recordingloungepodcast.com and click the support RL tab to learn more. Um, guys, I'm going to sign off. This is probably going to be my last podcast for the month. I will have another podcast in December, um, but I apologize for the lack of a podcast in October. Um, but these two shows hopefully make up for that. I will have a show for you in December, possibly two, and we'll be on to a new year. Guys, it's coming soon. All right, be safe this month. Enjoy your holidays, and I'll talk to you next month.